Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to this latest IEA In Conversation with on our YouTube channel. My name is Mark Littlewood. I am the Director General of the IEA. And I've got a very special guest back on the IEA London YouTube channel. Uh, David Davis has been a Member of Parliament since 1987 for the constituency of Halton, Bryce and Howden. Uh, an enormous uh, political career spanning over 35 years vast range of roles, including Minister of State for Europe, Shadow Home Secretary, and of course, Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, a position he resigned from in opposition to Theresa May's Chequers proposals. Keen supporter of civil liberties, low tax, capitalism, and a free market economy. I'm going to be asking David his views on the present state of the economy, and in particular tax, and whether we're going in the right or the wrong direction. So, the man, the myth, the legend, David Davis. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Great to have you back here at the uh, IEA. Give us your spot price overview of where we're at in the with the economy now and the trajectory of this government, which right. to my mind seems to be high tax, high well, spending. I'll start by offering you a contract to introduce me at every speech. <laughs> <laughs> but the right, well, you, you've got to, you've always got to when you're thinking about the economic strategy or economic position. Look at the surroundings, you know, the political surroundings, the international surroundings, the structure in society and so on. At the moment, we're in a really big inflection point for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, the coronavirus, coronavirus crisis, both globally and also locally, because it's had obviously huge impacts on our national balance sheet. You've got a fact, which I think not many people have really noticed, that we are at the end of 30 halcyon years of global free trade. Mm -hmm. 1995, creation of the World Trade Organization, the GATT round and all that, has led to a fantastic reduction in tariff barriers across the board. And that, of course, is probably the most important event in history in many ways. It lifted a one and a half billion people out of absolute poverty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's coming to an end. You're seeing more protectionism. Obviously, the European Union, the Americans instinctively protectionist. Uh, you're seeing the same in East Asia and so on. So that's naturally sort of getting a bit slow and with it the growth rate it engendered. But it's also adding to that all the fears now of not being too dependent on mm -hmm. other countries, whether it's for oil, gas, technology, you know, uh, chips, whatever yep. it might be. Yep. And so you get a degree of economic nationalism coming back in, which reinforces that. So there's, a, there's an issue to deal with there. Uh, on top of that, you've got the still ongoing, and in fact still accelerating technological revolution. I mean, it, it looks like it's going to keep accelerating for a decade or two, even now. And finally, of course, Brexit, mm -hmm. which actually allows us and requires us to to make uh, some bolder moves than we have done so far. And we, you, you've uh, you've hosted, I think, in the past, David Frost, who resigned because he didn't think we were doing that. We weren't seizing the opportunity. Which brings us to you know what now. Um, and what now is that what we ought to be doing is looking at a comparatively deregulatory, not entirely deregulatory, but a comparatively deregulatory approach, particularly in new industries. Frankly, I'm not bothered what they do in the car industry and so on. Um, that, 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 will, that will be the same for everybody. But uh, artificial intelligence, medicine, all the physiological uh, sciences and so on, that need, we need to get a grip on that, and we're not. We're behind it. Mm -hmm. The Europeans are ahead of us in AI uh, regulation, for example. Uh, and 
The other element of, of economic freedom, of course, is tax. And where we're going on that seems to me to be in the wrong direction. I mean, obviously, we've got huge economic transition going on, and it's very unpredictable. Um, but, uh, and we need to understand plainly what we're trying to do. First off, you've got a debt probably now close to 100% of GDP. There or thereabouts, yeah. Of, of which about 400 billion, about 40% of it, no, no, less than that, but, but 40, 400 billion of it actually is like a war loan. Yeah? Um, and COVID expenditure. It's yeah, COVID yeah. expenditure, that's right. Um, uh, both the explicit expenditure, the sort of subsidies that the, 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 the government quite properly used, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that uh, in the emergency situation. Um, and it's sort of like a war loan. They say, after 1918, we had about 200% of GDP mm -hmm. in debt. After 1945, we had 250% of it. Both of those were basically paid off in the last decade. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. um, and that's where we need to place ourselves now. I mean, I, I was slightly critical of the government on this. I thought they should earlier start creating the long bonds and, and, and so on that were necessary because it would be cheaper. The longer we wait, the more the interest rate goes sure. up, the more inflation uncertainty goes up, the bigger the premium yet, and so on. So the quicker we do that, the better. But also it's an intellectual exercise of sterilising that. You know, we shouldn't be trying to balance the books in the face of still ongoing mm -hmm. COVID penalty. Uh, indeed, I mean, the, the Chancellor uh, and indeed the Prime Minister described themselves as Thatcherites, uh, as, as low-tax uh, Conservatives, at the same time as we're putting taxes up. The, the justification for that is balancing the books. Well, most people would balance the books over an economic cycle. They wouldn't balance it in one year in which you're in a, in sure. a depression, which is we're coming out of a depression where we are now. So that's the, f that's the first problem. Intellectually separate the COVID costs from the normal ongoing business yep. and then think, what do you want? And what I want is a growth-based economy because of all those things I described earlier, the world is going to get much more competitive about capital flows, about technology, mm -hmm. uh, about the exploitation of technology. All that's going to demand that we pull business tools, we pull brain power tools and so on. So the lower the taxes are, whether it's individual taxes, and I'll talk about those in a minute, or whether it's corporation taxes, um, the lower they are, the more attractive we are going to be. We are a very attractive place anyway, remember. We have the huge, oh, I'd say the biggest competitive advantage in the world is our language. You know, it's a language of science, language of media, language of programming. You know, if you if you if you learn to good legal system as well, legal systems. You know, right <coughs> across the board, entertainment and and you know, if you're going to learn programming in your Chinese, you've sort of got to learn English first. Sure. You know, so so there's huge advantages there, which means you know we can we can exploit our position. So right, come back to what we're doing now. Well, in the last year, because of political drivers, and most particularly the need to increase funding of both national health service and social care, uh, the government estimated that cost about £12 billion. And so they said, right, we'll pay for that with a national insurance increase. Uh, uh, however, um, um, firstly, I mean, I never really believe the sort of spreadsheet arithmetic that the Treasury comes up with. Here, well, we, put, we crank in the increase at one end and out we get the £12 yeah. billion because it hits growth. And if you wanted to pick a bad tax in terms of impact on uh, incentives to employment, both 
as the employee wanted to work harder and incentives to get employed, yeah. the, the employer wants to do it, uh, an impact on effective demand because it's going to go straight into the, or it's come straight out of more accurately, uh, their wallets when they're going uh, shopping. Um, uh, in all sorts of ways, it is a very bad tax, but it's a politically popular tax. This came about, I think, because really with funding the health service, people think the national insurance payment goes into the health service. It doesn't. Yeah, really. yeah, it's <laughs> a general tax. Now. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so it's popular, but it's not a very good tax from the point of view of uh, delivering a good combination of growth and revenue raising. So... That's where we start. Oh, I, I was against it in the first place. I was one of the ones who abstained. There were 54 people either abstained or voted against. 10 voted against, 44 abstained, because voting against a financial measure is quite a big deal. Um, but uh, we were from, against it from the beginning, so were a number of others, people like John Redwood uh, uh, and other thoughtful people uh, on our back benches. Um, now, however, I mean, th we thought it was bad at the beginning, but now we've looked at what's actually happened with the national accounts um, and we are actually well first thing to say is the treasury has a historic record of of uh, never being right well well actually now you say it uh, one of my first questions for the back benches after i'd stood down from theresa may's government was to actually ask some poor unfortunate treasury minister when was the last time a treasury or a bank of england forecast was right and when the house had stopped laughing the Poor man got up and said, "Well, actually, never, never, yeah." yeah. Uh, but they tend to be on the pessimistic side. They're a bit like, a bit like Neil Ferguson's forecast of COVID. It's yep. on the pessimistic side a lot of the time, and um, and that's what we've seen here. At the, at the last budget, they had to adjust the forecast upwards, uh, improve, in an improving direction by fifty billion, and then since then, since since the setting of this policy, it's got better in the first nine months, by another 13 billion. Yeah. It's a nice round number, because it's almost exactly what... The amount that they say they need Berkeley. for health and social care. So yeah. just on the basis of the accounts, we should not do that. Got it, got it. I want to, unpa I want to unparcel some of the points you've made. So mm. let's uh, start with the, the broad state of the public finances. And I have a huge amount of sympathy for your view that the, the COVID expenditure... We can argue forever and a day whether it was wisely spent or whatever, but it's yeah. a one-off emergency. Doesn't matter, it's behind us. Yeah. Yeah. Her hermetically seal it mm. and pledge to pay it back over a period of time, fine. But that's the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? I mean, the, the real worry, even if we hadn't had a COVID pan uh, pandemic, is uh, the state of the public finance is pretty grim. You mentioned that the national debt is round about terms 100% of GDP. Yeah. But look at the trajectory, look at the demographics, uh, look at the unfunded liabilities. Uh, Nick Silver, for us, calculates and updates those every year. He thinks that that could be 500% of GDP, there or thereabouts, in public sector pensions costs, all of the things we promised, triple lock state pensions and, and the rest. So I'll grant you, let's sort of put aside the 300 billion, 400 billion, whatever we yeah. spent on COVID, we'll pay that off, yeah. presumably by running surpluses over the next yeah, uh, period yeah, of time. Over time. Yeah. But uh, I, I thought that the, even if you were a Keynesian, the idea was that you save in the good times and then when the bad times like COVID hits, yeah, exactly. of course there's a deficit. Exactly. But actually we got into the cycle of living somewhat beyond our means in the good times yeah. and radically beyond our means in the bad times. Yeah. This is the trajectory I'm worried about, notwithstanding that we can hermetically yeah. seal the COVID yeah. money. I'm right to be panicked, aren't I? Slightly right to be panicked. I mean, this is, this is, but this is not a new problem. I mean, when I was Public Accounts Committee Chairman, around about the 2000-ish, 
we um, did a we, we, we took through a bill. Unusually, a select committee was involved in an act of parliament um, to what's called a resource accounting bill, and it was trying to get the accounting basis of government out of sort of basically like a cash till accounting, like keeping half the money here and yeah, all, yeah. that sort of thing, into a more modern state. <coughs> but the one thing I could never persuade the government to do was to do a proper capitalization of forward liabilities, is what you're mm -hmm. talking about, mm -hmm. basically. And actually, the numbers haven't changed that much. They're still about 500% they were roughly then. And that's why the government wouldn't touch it, because mm -hmm. they were, they, I think they thought they panicked the financial markets. But the financial markets know as well as it's you It's not a secret. Yeah, it's I just know. not all <laughs> they, they know as well as you and I do. But, but, uh, uh, but they, didn't want, they didn't want the political pressures that would flow from that. So th that is true. That is, but it's true for every single country in the world. Um, and uh, it, it, what it means is that we have to think of ways of bringing that, uh, as it were, implicit debt under control. Uh, now, that will be all sorts of things to affect that. You're already seeing some bits of it. That's why the government is gradually increasing the age of retirement. You know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm 73. I'm fitter than my father was at 40, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, those sorts of things can happen. You're going to see transformations in society with people being uh, looked after at home much more. Technology is going to help with that. So there's going to be a whole series of things. But the truth is, I, you know, I, I lived through... The first time I ever came to the IEA was uh, just before Thatcher. That's <laughs> why I tend to think of it. And at that time, we all thought we were doomed for other reasons. You know, socialism was going to win. The trade union we, power. Uh, trade union yeah. power was going to dominate society. Uh, Britain was in permanent decline. Our job was to manage that decline. And she took it and she turned it around. I mean, not all at one big go, but in salami slice after <laughs> salami slice <laughs> after salami slice. Huge strategic aim. But, but cut it uh, into small pieces and then achieved it. And we're going to have to do the same with these problems. Um, you know, we're going to find people, we're going to look, working environments and working, working methods are going to transform dramatically. My point about the latter part of the IT revolution or the comms and, comms and computation revolution is, you know, is exactly right. It's going to go on and on. <laughs> we're going to have to see um, an increase in... Uh, the productivity, literally, of every person in the in the country. One of the reasons to come back to the the tax issue, you know, I think low tax is a good idea. I thought a low tax, high tech economy is the most productive option you can go for strategically. Um, and so, yes, there is this huge looming problem. We mustn't uh, forget it's there, but neither must we let it panic us into a strategy which doesn't work. If we were talking the Treasury, the Treasury, the Treasury Mandarin say, yeah, we mean put taxes up. You know. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Wrong answer. Yeah, no, I would agree with you on that. Hmm. What I'm worried about uh, is, and there's no particular uh, policy I'd point to, I, I oppose the Nick's rise, I, I, like you, uh, but there's a continual drip, drip of policies, not just from this administration, from previous administrations as well, that are taking us in exactly the opposite direction to the one that you've outlined and that you and I would like. Whether it, I mean, I think on some estimates, and I know you can, there are different measurements of it, but in broad terms, we now have the highest tax take as a proportion of GDP mm -hmm. since Clem Attlee's socialist government. I mean, this, uh, we have, uh, it's, it's harder to measure, but the, the quantum and complexity of regulation has gone up and up and up year on year. More regulations come in every year. 
it's hardly surprising that we have low productivity. We're all spending our time going around complying rather than producing. Well, so, you know, I agree with your agenda, but do you agree with my concern that inch by inch the trajectory seems to be in the wrong direction, whether you're looking at regulation, future spending, higher taxes? It's all slightly slipping away from us, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it has to be. And it was one of the reasons I was in favour of Brexit, because it gives us more freedom to do something. Now... Yeah, if you if you go out to any any political audience, even a conservative one, and you start talking about deregulation, people get nervous. They think you're sort of thinking of a sort of Mad Max economy with you know uh, 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 eliminating all the safety regulations. Mm-hmm. You know you don't need to do that at all. Um, but you know you 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 need to say to yourself, okay, how are we going to deal with this? If you if you're a car manufacturer, the regulations part of the cost of business is not a big deal. If you are a small company, things like IR35, uh, the tax... This is the com- self-employment. That's right. So, yeah. Tax complexity is a big burden yeah. in its own right. Uh, new regulations are more dangerous than old ones because they, they're more difficult to cope with, which is why I say, actually, we should have a, a, a regulatory strategy which focuses on the regulations for new businesses. Now, the advantage we have, however... Uh, post-Brexit is this one. What's the great single political win post-Brexit? It's the vaccine. Yep. And that was a marginal deregulation, which gave us three or four months yep. of advantage. If we'd still been the MA, we'd probably, it would probably be a six-month advantage because our doing it quickly pushed them ahead. Yep. Um, and so we can turn around the public and say, actually, you know, deregulation can make you safer if yep. you do it yep. right if you're sophisticated about it, and I think we need to pick up those parables and run with them. But the other thing I'd say to you is this. You're right about the overall tax burden going up and up and up. As you say, it's, it's, it's approximately 70, a 70-year record. Um, but ask yourself, what is the only way out of that? The only way out of that is growth. Literally, there is no other way mm-hmm. to escape mm-hmm. that. We have, the, we have to get a bigger economy to be able to, ca- to, be able to carry yep. the existing state. And when people talk to me about, oh, well, you know, if you, don't, if you want to cancel, let's say, the NICS increase this year, what are you going to do next year? I say, next year, I'm going to grow the economy. Because that's the only way you're going to pay for the health service of the future. It's the only way you're going to pay for social care. It's the only way you're going to pay for education. If you don't have growth, none of it's affordable. All agreed. Do you think, though, within the public spending envelope that we need to take a long, hard look at. Again, there's supposed to be a kind of comprehensive spending review, but there doesn't seem to be an appetite to cut anything. And again, as you were saying, David, if you sort of talk about deregulating, yeah. people assume it's a Mad Max. Because the minute you talk about cutting public spending, people assume that you're sort of willfully wanting people to starve in the streets. Yeah. But surely... Uh, we, there are huge areas of government expenditure we should look at. I mean, if you were to look at, say, the welfare bill, yeah. um, I think on a rough calculation, I'm just measuring transfer payments here, including the state pension, though, which is a very big part of it. You're looking at a welfare bill, just moving money from one cohort to another, of something in the region, I think it's £12,000 per household per year. Mm. Uh, if there was no uh, overhead cost, you could put £12,000 through the letterbox of mm. every household in Britain at the start of the year. With that sort of expenditure, why is there any poverty in the UK at all? Yeah. I mean, presumably 80, 90% of households don't need any support. So you've got, you know, 100,000 yeah. for the poorest household. Somewhere, as Ronald Reagan said, there must be some overhead. Yeah. And uh, well, it, it seems to me there's just an area where surely within that budget you can crack poverty yeah. if you do it a different way yeah. at a lower cost. One thing I'll guarantee you, you know, the, the, the state, which is voracious, uh, the state uh, and the, the leaders of the state, 
will never come to you and say, we want a tax increase to pay for some more overheads. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> that comes yeah. to we want more healthcare or yeah, you know, sure. whatever. Um, but no, you're right. And I think one of, the, one of the things we do have to do is have a structural look uh, and a really big, deep look uh, at the spending patterns of our state. Um, because there's, there's a fair amount of there's a fair amount of inefficiency, to say the least. I was public accounts committee chairman for about four, four or five years, and I often say when I'm talking to audiences, you know, having sat there and interrogated the Sir Humphrey Applebys of of uh, the people who actually run the country, the permanent secretaries. Uh, after five years, you know, difference between you and me is you think yes ministers, yes ministers are comedy. I know it's a training film. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, it, it, that's what it feels. Um, but there's another thing as well in terms of the attack on policy. Um, and this will probably be controversial with some of your viewers, but uh, so I ask them to sort of follow it right through to the end. Something like z uh, net zero, right? Now, all right, lots of people want to achieve net zero, fine. But sometimes there's a huge difference between the cost of being number one and let's say being number three. You're still in the top quartile, mm. indeed in the top decile, right, of, of what people are achieving. Our tiny economy, not that tiny, but it's 1% of the world economy, it's not going to change the, f the fate of the world if we, if we come second or third. Uh, but the cost of doing it is going to get dramatically cheaper. I mean, look at the cost of photovoltaic cells will come down dramatically. You know, those who, like me, who bought them early, got yep. a lot of money, probably yep. 10 times what I pay today. Look at wind farms are coming down, hopefully, uh, hopefully tidal energy. All these other things, the costs are coming down as more and more people adopt them. But if we, if we are literally insist on being in the front row, as it were, for headline reasons, then, uh, then it will cost more. And who will pay the cost? It won't be the rich. It will be the ordinary sure. person paying their fuel bills. But they, they, here you've got another example, OK? I'm, I, I, I can see all of the rational scientific evidence for decarbonisation. Yeah. I'm not a, yeah. you know, CO2 can have bad atmospheric effects. But I, I'm not aware. Well, I asked Rishi Sunak at the Conservative conference when I interviewed him to put a price on mm. getting to carbon net zero, but he wasn't able to put a price on it. No. So it's huge. Now, you're right. I can imagine that as technologies improve, it, you know, it, it may become yeah. cheaper. But on the flip side, doing your first 10% of decarbonisation is a lot easier than squeezing out the last 10%. You know, it's a little bit like getting 5G. You can probably get 5G to 90% of the country quite easily. 95% is a stretch. 99% yeah. difficult. That last 1% extremely yeah. expensive. So here is another exercise. And let's just assume for the sake of argument, absolutely necessary in order to prevent the apocalypse, just yeah. for the sake yeah, of argument. Yeah, huge cost, where we're not willing to make a trade-off to say, well, we're going to go for carbon net zero. I'm afraid that's going to mean we've got less on healthcare and education. We just have to do that because we need to save the planet. That's more important than health, uh, education, pensions or whatever. No sense of a trade-off in our public finances. That's what troubles me. It needs to be more of everything. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's certainly true. And, and, and by the way, I don't think it's necessarily a sort of exponential curve. It depends what you're doing. And, and I mean, some of it requires imagination. You know, I'm a big fan of carbon capture, mm -hmm. you know, which we haven't used the sort of resources we have with holes under the North Sea in some respects um, that we haven't done. So, yeah, of course it's difficult. And, you know, you're not going to get politicians to say to, a, to an audience, well, you know, you can have, you can have, you've got three bags of goodies here. Uh, I'm only going to give you one. I yeah, mean, yeah. You don't get elected that way. So, so I'm afraid that democracy does push us uh, in that direction. But it doesn't, I, I still don't think at the end of the day um, that we are unable to address this. Bear in mind, you know, we are phenomenally wealthy. 
just off the back of compound interest, <laughs> brutally, <laughs> in the last century. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, yeah, we, we've had a whole series of re revolutions, from the sanitation revolution to the electrical revolution to the IT revolution, uh, and uh, all post-industrial revolution. So you know, there's huge amounts we can do, but it, what it takes is year-on-year -year determination. Every single year, it takes a determination to make sure that you are keeping an eye on the thing that, should, that, that will run away if you don't. Which is why you know, one of my uh, easy comments is, you know, when it's not absolutely necessary to increase taxes, it's absolutely necessary not to increase taxes. Yep. It's a very simple rule, but we don't obey it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's move on a bit to the deregulation side. Mm. You, you, you touched on that. I mean, to my mind, the IEA obviously didn't take any corporate position, but a good number of people at the IEA were uh, supporters of Brexit, some even very enthusiastic supporters. Yeah. And I think the clincher argument for those of us from a classical liberal perspective, and I'm not suggesting this was the bulk of Brexiteers, was, and you touched on it, what an opportunity to deregulate. Mm. We'd had, I mean, some of them are a little farcical, some of them are a bit fanciful, but endless stories of how Brussels red tape and regulation, you know, how, how extraordinary and farcical it was, and, you know, regulating the curvature of bananas and God knows what else. Mm. Uh, some of them, I think, were... Some of them were some some not true. Some of them were not true. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and actually, some of them... Uh, uh, weren't particularly novel. I mean, I think prior to entering the EU, we had British regulations about the acceptable curvature of fruit before, yeah. we, uh, before we joined the European community. But nevertheless, the overall narrative, and it was an attractive one, I think, was there's a whole bunch of bureaucracy and rules out here which are a mixture of petty, silly, burdensome, troublesome, jobs-worthy. And so my view was right. Well, th th that's a very good reason to leave, but only if you are going to deregulate. Now, you've got to distinguish between the stock and the flow, and yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Once you've abided by the regulation that determines that you've got to have an elevator installed in your office or whatever, and it's got to be, once you've paid for it, that's a sunk cost in, in large yeah. way. But, the, but surely we can do something with the stock. And why do you have any confidence that we will be saner than the European Union in terms of the flow? I mean, it seems to me this government is extremely keen to regulate everything. I know this wasn't at the high tech end, but, you know, we're going to ban online advertisements for jam as part of a public health drive. <laughs> this doesn't strike me. If that speaks to the nature of the beast. That doesn't strike me as a government that's keen that every opportunity to exploit new tech, no, uh, no stone is left on, unturned. Quite the opposite. No, I mean, and, and the, 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 the truth is, I mean, what, what, you, what you've got in Brussels is you've got a, a machine in which... Uh, and it's not a particularly democratic machine because basically all these ideas for regulation come together and then there's a huge industrial structure that feeds into it. Um, uh, whereas the argument back here is it will at least be democratic if, if it's brought before the House of Commons. But no, it's not always, it's no guarantee we'll do it better unless we, unless we said about it in the right way. I mean, uh, I, I gave, and, and of course one of the things that the, the reason I picked the Mad Max example is because that's what the French thought. The French thought, you know, these Anglo-Saxons, and I gave a speech in, in, uh, in uh, actually it was in Austria, which was rather appropriate for Austrian economics, but the, uh, I gave a speech saying, look, this is not about a race to the bottom, in some ways it's about a race to the top. It's about having elegant, well-designed um, uh, regulation, not badly designed mm -hmm. regulation. So to give you an example of badly designed regulation, is GDPR. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I am I am the world's fiercest defender of privacy. Heaven knows how many sacrifices I've made in my parliamentary career to defend people's privacy. Um, uh, and yet GDPR's bonkers. 
Yeah, it's just heavy-handed, clumsy, yep. doesn't really do the job very well either, you know. Um, and so it's quite a good example of how it, this is about elegance in regulation in some ways as much as deregulation. Yep. It's about making it easier, cheaper and more effective. Um, and that's why I'm concerned about something like artificial intelligence. We are one of the world's leaders in, t in this particular area. And we should have been at the front, uh, as it were, getting our regulation sorted out before anybody else's, as, it, as we were with vaccines. Um, in fact, we aren't. Well, we're not really there, and, and the Europeans have done it, and you bet your bottom dollar, and the Americans are doing it, and you bet your bottom dollar we're going to be catching up and adopting theirs. So we've got to be, we've, we've got, we have to have a systematic strategy to deal with it. Uh, and it, as I say again, it doesn't mean less safety, it doesn't mean less privacy and so on. There are loads of things we can do. And, by the way, because of the nature of our state, you know, if we're clever about it, it will actually give us an economic advantage. I'll give you a single example. Um, we have, because we have a nationalised healthcare system, we have more medical data uh, around the, the, that is accessible, if you like, than almost any other country in the world. In fact, probably any other country in the world, because any other competitor would be America or possibly China. Mm -hmm. China doesn't compete in this area at the moment. So, um, uh, but the, but it's a huge privacy issue. You know, if they put your and my uh, medical records online, we might not be very happy about yeah, it. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, um, so you know, we can do this, and we actually have brilliantly good scientists in this country, and mostly at Oxford who now know how to do this safely and effectively. And we ought to create the regulatory standard for the world in this. And it's to anonymise the data but still yield the scientific well, research well, benefits well, of what it. it what so. it does is, no, no, it doesn't anonymise. You can't anonymise medical data. What it actually does is turn a, the whole, and this is why it's clever, it turns the whole problem on its head. So instead of me getting all the data and then looking at it, it requires me to set up a hypothesis in a program and send the program into the data and uh, it comes back with right, the answer. Right, right. Very clever and mm -hmm. a thousand times simpler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see what I mean? You know, if, we, if we are smart about it uh, and we're determined to do it, determined to lighten the burden of regulation, we can be a world leader. Let's come back to the tax point. Um, where, where do you think we're going to end up with on the next rise? Is it a done deal now? Of course, just a few days ago, the, uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister co-penned a piece in the Sunday Telegraph. Yeah. You referenced it at the start, saying that they are tax-cutting Conservatives and Thatcherites. Well, you, you could have fooled me. Well, I mean, well that, that's what they said about themselves. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, am, I am always reminded of St Augustine, you know, the famous line about give me chastity and but give me yet, yeah. but not yet. Well, these are, these are tax Augustinians. <laughs> yeah. you know, we are the Augustinian tax cutters. One day we'll do it. Well, actually, no, that, the trouble is, you know, you have to do it as soon as you can. Because if the if the state collects money, it will spend it. You know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. One of the things I noticed as a public accounts committee chairman was, uh, I mean, the Department of Health got quite a big increase under Blair, and they were scrambling to spend the money in the last two or three months of the year, so their budgets didn't get cut the next sure. year. So you've got to be very careful to keep the state under control, uh, and you, that's not by ex raising extra money, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or unnecessary extra money. So, but do you think it will go ahead? You mentioned there were 50 or so Conservative rebels. The, 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 I mean, could it actually be defeated in a parliamentary vote, the yeah, Labour Party as opposed if, to it? If, if, if the scope arises, I mean, and it's a question of what bills go through the House in the next two months, um, because that, that's when it's done. It's a done deal by then, really. Um, and if there's an opportunity, then it may well be that, you know, Tories who want to do this, 
uh, and the opposition, who, who don't like it, um, will we'll carry it through. But it's a, it's a long shot now, I'm afraid. I mean, the truth is, if the Prime Minister and the Chancellor agree on something, it's tough to... Tough yeah, to, to pick it. Even yeah. if they're plumb wrong, as I think they are in this case. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's strange that we now seem to have had a got ourselves into a position where um, the Labour opposition's key economic critique of the Conservative government is that taxes are too high? Oh, God, it's, it's an astonishing position. I mean, what, what people should realise, I think, is, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time during the last election going around the red, 16 of the red wall seats. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people on doorsteps, switch voters. And the primary reason for them switching from Labour to Tories was essentially a fear of Jeremy Corbyn's tax plan. I mean, you know, Brexit was important. Which your Bre party has now implemented. <laughs> Well, in essence, that's the risk. That's how they'll see it, you know. You know, if you're if you know if you're a welder or a bricklayer or a heavy goods vehicle driver, uh, you know, and you you know you're probably better off than most people in your street, but you watch the pennies, mm -hmm. you know, and you want to save up for your nice holiday in in the summer. Now we can do them again, will yeah, we? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of that. Um, you know, you're not going to be very happy to have something like ten percent of your disposable income disappear. Um, uh, which is which is what we're looking at, really. At the same time, as you've got, uh, you've already had a big increase in your fuel cost, but you've got another seven hundred quid a family thereabouts coming on mm -hmm. the back of it. You've got general inflation now at the highest level for at least thirty years. You know, yep. um, six seven percent. Uh, you know, all these increasing costs. You know, if you're well off, it doesn't it doesn't hit you. But if you know, for most families, they have to budget. And they will feel this. And there's a sort of tipping point around the just about managings and the, yeah. you know, the, the, oh, yeah, the, the yeah. you know, yeah. if you are counting the pennies, that's got but an May awful lot harder. About, yeah, just about, just about managing. Yeah. And I think, you know, her family history sort of taught her that, as mine did me, you know. And, and we're and tipping these people into the not quite managing. Yeah. That, that, or, you know, or having, or having to make, having to make unnecessary economies or, or feeling under pressure. You know, and being under financial pressure is not very good for your mental health either. True. So, yeah, and, and against that, you're trading off. Well, you know, uh, we're going to have a levelling up agenda. We're going to spend money in in your part of the world, and so on. Well, you know, if I'm a lorry driver living in Wakefield, uh, I want first to have my own budget okay, and then maybe I'll be quite happy if they build a new railway station or whatever it might be. But uh, first and foremost. It's my own budget. I mean, what conservatives believe and what economic libertarians believe is that the individual can spend their own money most of the time better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. There's only some limited community areas where, where, uh, where it, that's not true. And uh, I, you know, I, I worry. I just worry that we may be uh, damaging the reputation of the tax cutters brand, as it were. Um, I was around during the ERM crisis, when the Conservative Party destroyed its economic reputation for, an, for a decade. And, and that's despite handing over, and I quote the chief economic advisor to the Prime Minister of the day, handing over the best economy that any incoming Labour government could ever see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we handed over our, the, a good economy and our reputation yeah, at yeah, one yeah. go. You know, and that was really clever. I don't want us to do that again. It's interesting what you say about the levelling up agenda. I haven't quite. It's, it, I get a bit frustrated with these political catchphrases. The levelling up agenda. David Cameron had the big society, didn't Tony Blair had the stakeholder society. Yeah. 
and sort of, you know, people, you get these sort of strokey beard meetings where everybody sits around and tries to work out what the hell it means. And yeah. it's not obvious to me what it means, but it does seem to me a very um, unimaginative way of addressing some of the poorer left behind parts of the United Kingdom. It is, or let's lob money at them. It is regional development funds. There's, I mean, there are a few things the government's doing where I think they could be a lot more imaginative. Free ports. I mean, why don't we... You know, I mean, I actually only want one enterprise zone called the United Kingdom, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll compromise. <laughs> meanwhile. Uh, and, yeah, but meanwhile, you know, perhaps in these areas that have not had a, a particularly good few decades of economic growth, maybe we could, you know, yeah. make employment easier, taxes lower, what, but that, none of that's happening. It's just, I'm going to yeah. build you a new roundabout. Yeah, I mean, part, part of the difficulty here is just straight politics. You know, I mean, look, I am, you know, uh, uh, alongside people's civil liberties, I really care about social mobility, about ordinary kids. I mean, we are now, I mean, when I went through school, we had one of the best social mobility uh, records in the world. It's now amongst the weakest of the developed nations, not, not the underdeveloped mm. ones. But, um, and that's a real tragedy in my view. So that, you know, if, if it's gonna address that, fine. But I don't see much sign of that yet. Um, as, for the, as for the funding, the, the, the difficulty is that the tendency is to try and throw the money at the seats you want to win rather than put the money in places where there is a good eco general economic return. Um, and, my, and so, you know, for example, I'd never build a bridge over the Irish Sea, you know, waste of money, you know. I wouldn't have built HS2. HS2 is going to co cost at least 100% more than they're currently estimating. Uh, and it'll do the reverse of what they intend. It'll bring business to London. It won't take it to, yeah, yeah. to, 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 to the provinces. Um, but that being said, Treasury rules have been slightly bent out of shape in terms of they prevent public investment in the provinces uh, and favour the southeast. Now, what that means is there are quite a few public investments around, if you look for them, that will deliver a very good economic return and therefore a sort of tax return, not, not directly to what you're investing, but more generically. The, the best example I like is was one that was highlighted by Sebastian Payne of the FT, and, and he wrote a book uh, about uh, the, these parts of Britain. And he, it was a, a railway line between Burnley and Manchester, and there was a thing called the Todmorden Curve. It had been closed down under beaching. For 10 or 15 million quid, they cut the travel time from Burnley to Manchester, which then liberated the housing market of Burnley, which at that point nobody wanted to live in Burnley, then all of a sudden they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they could work in Manchester. Now, you, if you can find things like that, then it's perfectly proper to debt finance. But they're spectacularly unglamorous, these things, aren't but they? Politicians want the, the, the grand projet. They're, 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 not, they're not Roman uh, amphitheatres. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not, as you say, not grand project, projects. They're not millennium bridges and so on. They, they, they are, they are uh, practical, common-sense stuff where there's a weakness. Normally, these things end up as de-bottlenecking something. I know it's a horrible phrase. But, you know, uh, if you wanted to spend money on railways, you should have said, OK, let's put an extra line on the <coughs> East Coast Railway. So every time something breaks down, it's not a seven-hour delay for everybody else, you know. Um, uh, that sort of, as you say, unglamorous, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, gritty, practical stuff. And you know what? My lorry driver and my welder would understand that, yep. you know.
you know, they may not have a, you know, a degree in PPE, but they're, they're just as smart as you and me yeah, when yeah. it comes to practical common sense things. That's really interesting. Do, do you think, therefore, I mean, it, it, for you as politicians and your parties to work out the electoral dividends, that's not the role mm. of a think tank, but is there some, I don't know, not quite silver bullet, but overarching principle that you would like to see the government adopt? Let's say... We're going to look at everything through the lens of its impact on economic growth and we're going to have a dash for growth and, you know, we really care about getting the growth rate back up to 3% over the long term and anything that might get it from, you know, 1.5 to 1.6 would be warmly welcomed. That's what's going to govern our approach to everything. First and foremost, that's the ace of trumps. Would that be a, a way of doing it? Or should there be in mind, I don't know, an optimal tax take? Maybe it should only be 25 or 30% of GDP and have a... 10-year plan of trying to get there mm. because at the moment now i appreciate covid literally was this but with brexit and covid and more generally one has the impression i think of just sort of crisis management you know mm. a problem comes along we'll try and fix it we'll spend money on it it's extremely difficult to discern a strategy yeah. what would the dd strategy well, be i mean i'd sort of steal it you know, i'd plagiarize it frankly from from david frost you know who whose point was generally that uh, you know we are we're, we're not exploiting the options the opportunities of Brexit, but let's also come back to your question about the sort of hidden balance sheet, you know, um, and take a sort of war loan approach to that. Uh, 250 percent of the GDP was gradually paid off over fifty to hundred years. Why? Because we had huge growth. Why did we have huge growth? Well, huge growth. We had we had reliable yeah, long term three percent ish sort yeah, of yeah. so a little less now but but that sort of order um and and that came about partly because of free trade partly because so firstly i'd like to see a strategy which says yes this is based on growth you know what one of the things the treasury often underestimates is tax buoyancy um just the relationship between growth and uh, and the mm. tax take and tax buoyancy is really quite sharp really quite sensitive you know uh, to to growth and so, you know, I would build a strategy around that, mm -hmm. that we're going to pay for today's liabilities and the future's liabilities by gradually seeking to change the ratio between yep. the, the private sector uh, and the public. Not that we want to shrink the public sector, not at all. We want to deliver the public services, but the best way to deliver the public services is to have actually a bigger private sector that can afford it. Sure. I mean, it might be a lower proportion of the economy, but it could be a bigger slice of pie yeah, might, because it, the pie is so much it bigger. It might be. I mean, look, the country that did this in reverse, uh, gosh, it was the 60s onwards, I guess, was, was Sweden, where it went for, where it got to a point where its, where its public burden was too big mm -hmm. and, and, it did, and it hit its growth rate for a long time and then it sort of woke up and changed and we now it's one of the more successful countries in the world because it puts economic growth high up the agenda. Uh, and so, and, and I pick Sweden because it's a social democratic country, sure. basically, even when it has the odd quirky Tory in, <laughs> in charge, one of whom is a friend of mine, he's basically a social democratic Tory. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they put social aims very high up the agenda, but they know they've got to pay for them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they can deliver it. So you start by how you pay for it. It's quite interesting. I'm, I'm a bit more familiar with Denmark. Mm -hmm. and Again, on the spot price, not that, different, sort of yeah. not that different, but yeah. you'd sort of say, Expenditure is, is, is uh, a high, a public expenditure is a high proportion of GDP there. But there are quite a lot of liberal things about these countries, classical liberal things. I yeah. mean, Denmark is not a very heavily regulated economy. No. The employment market is not very heavily regulated. No. They've got very generous welfare, yeah. 
uh, a lot of their spending is just transfer payments. They're not trying to run a gigantic nationalised healthcare service. Yeah. They're yeah. just yeah. moving money from cohort to cohort. So I think there are quite a lot of liberal and lessons we can, there. We can learn some lessons. I mean, I, you know, I think after after COVID, we're going to have to think a bit about you know, how we organise a health service. I mean, you know, we want a, we want a very effective health service at the moment. You know, in some of the areas. Um, Cancer survival rate, some some types, not all, some types of cancer survival rate. We're, we're, we're in a sort of bottom quartile of Europe and so on. We can learn some lessons from our European uh, colleagues, partners, and friends, you know. And you're right, Dem- Denmark Denmark's a determinedly individualistic country. I mean, it was yeah. the one, other than Britain, the one that always caused the European Union the, the biggest trouble. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I agree. I agree. So maybe we can learn some of the things from Denmark. Now, I'm going to finish, David, by asking you how sort of optimistic are you feeling? I mean, we've, we've said that. And it's been a very weird period in politics. We had the whole Brexit battle, and no sooner really was that done, and we plunged into a global pandemic. But uh, we've sort of shared our you know, scepticism, disappointment, I suppose, about the the present apparent trajectory. Are you confident this tanker will be turned around, or is it going to be like the first Director General of the IA said in the? Uh, mid 1970s, cheer up! Things can only get worse, and, and I think he meant from that actually things would have to get really bad before some radical thinking was actually applied to government. Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting you pick that because um, it won't happen automatically. That's the point to bear in mind. I mean, I was I was I knew your first director general, and he's a very great man, and you know, it was in this building that the. Uh, Lego blocks that made up Thatcherism were forged, uh, and then she put them together and made it work. Yep. And uh, and it w- and you're right. It happened because you know we were we were a country that was in decline, that we had strikes, that we you know all these things. The, the previously great country had seemed to become so troubled, uh, and and we got it. We 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 eventually got it right. And I think what we've got in the next couple of years or so. Is a lot of argument to, to be had uh, about how we run the grand economic strategy. At the moment, I've I've not heard uh, a treasure or any other minister, for that matter, a treasury minister or, or a prime minister, talk about what the economic strategy is for exploiting our freedoms post Brexit. Uh, but it has to happen, uh, and that's why the IA is important and other think tanks too. But it's very important that we come at this with a good, solid philosophical base philosophical base grounded in all that's gone before. You know, a lot of these problems we've seen before and we can deal with them in similar ways, but also grounded with an eye on the future and say, look, you know, as we started talking before about, uh, let's say, social care, you know, social care may be completely different in 20 years' time and we have to think that through too. So there's, you know, it's, listen, we are as well off as we've ever been, despite COVID, you know, as a country, as individuals. You know, my life is a, thousand times easier than let's say my grandfather's life was sure uh, uh, he never lived as long as me for a start so uh, so there's lots and lots and lots of debate to be had and real argument to be had uh, for the welfare of the British people um, because that's what it's all about then the, the test of this is how does my lorry driver my welder and his wife and their children and his wife probably goes out and works uh, uh, in a surgery or sure. you know, you know um, uh, how do they? Uh, get the best out of life for, for themselves and their family. And you know, the answer is not always obvious, um, but this place where we're sitting has been good at delivering quite a lot of them in the last 50 years. Uh, 
David, on that upbeat and very pro-IEA <laughs> note, we're, we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining us for My this pleasure. IEA uh, In Conversation event. If you've enjoyed this discussion, please make sure you hit the thumbs up uh, just below. And if you're not yet subscribed to the IEA London YouTube channel, please hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That will mean you keep up to date with our weekly updates and that nearly daily updates. So thanks very much for joining us for this In Conversation. We'll see you again very soon. Over and out.